Eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating are among the most pernicious and complicated psychiatric disorders to address. The specific etiologies of these disorders remain elusive, as do effective treatments with, without high rates of remission. It is estimated that almost one in 10 Americans will experience an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. Eating disorders can affect people of all ages, from as young as five years old to over age 80. Additionally, people of all races and genders can be affected by eating disorders, although people of color are half as likely to be diagnosed or receive treatment. And girls and women are twice as likely to have an eating disorder compared to boys and men. In addition to the psych psychiatric turmoil posed by eating disorders, they also can have very serious effects on physical health and function, such as multi-systemic organ damage, including cardiac abnormalities, cognitive impairment, and bone disease. Almost all persons with eating disorders report significant functional impairment. Eating disorders can also be deadly. Anorexia nervosa is associated with the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness, with a six-fold increase compared to the general population. Psychiatric comorbidity is common, including an elevated risk of substance abuse and a substantially higher risk of suicidality relative to the general population. The cost of treatment for eating disorders can be burdensome, burdensome to patients and their families, and each year eating disorders are estimated to pose a cost of almost $65 million to society. Despite all of this, research on eating disorders is significantly underfunded compared to other psychiatric disorders such as autism and schizophrenia. On top of all this, there's a growing body of evidence that the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated the problem of eating disorders for many people. Recent studies have shown an increase in eating disorder-related hospitalizations and emergency department visits during the pandemic. And we are today going to discuss the epidemiology of eating disorders and how the COVID-19 pandemic may have impacted the prevalence and burden of eating disorders, especially in younger persons. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. I'm joined by our co-host, Ghassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. How are you doing, Ghassan? Great. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. And today we are joined by Ariel Betcha, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us, Ariel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great. Okay. So, you know, we've been starting many of these podcasts lately by asking researchers how they got into the field that they're in. So what made you interested in studying eating disorders? Um, yeah, for sure. So I would say um, the main reason is that I myself struggled with an eating disorder when I was younger um, and several other like important people in my life also struggled with eating disorders. Um, and for all of us, it led to you know, some pretty significant health issues and other issues that uh, were, you know, long lasting. And so it had a big impact on me in that respect. 
Um, and then, you know, I guess flash forward to college, um, mm -hmm. I was majoring in neuroscience um, and I was working as um, an RA in a lab doing work on like the neurobiology of addiction and substance use. And mm. this kind of sparked an interest um, in like mental health research in a very general sense. Um, but I was also starting to do some volunteer and community work around eating disorder awareness and prevention. Um, and so I started getting interested in um, seeing if I could do research on eating disorders specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found really interesting was that uh, kind of across all of my um, like neuroscience training and research experiences at the time, uh, there was very little content on eating disorders, um, mm. but I was getting so much content on eating disorders. Um, so I minored in like gender and sexuality studies, and mm -hmm. so many of my courses were talking about eating disorders, um, specifically like the social and cultural factors um, mm -hmm. like leading to eating disorder risk um, in certain populations and uh, inequities by gender and sexual orientation and all of that just like really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And it eventually led to me pursuing, you know, a degree in epidemiology um, and focusing specifically on social epidemiology. And um, yeah, I wrote my dissertation on um, gender inequities and eating disorders and sort of like the social, social and cultural drivers of those patterns. Um, and yeah, still doing work on that now as a postdoc. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so obviously, this is a very personal issue for you and your family. And um, that's so wonderful that you were able to dedicate your career to figuring out this, uh, as I set up in the intro, pretty, pretty pernicious and, and awful um, psychiatric disorder. So, mm -hmm. you know, in your words, why, why would you say that eating disorders are an important public health concern that we should pay attention to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I do think you did a really good job at summarizing that in the intro. So uh, just like building on that, um, you know, first eating disorders are just a really serious mental health condition, just like any other mental health condition, like depression and anxiety. Um, you know, they negatively affect almost every organ system in the body, it's high levels of psychiatric comorbidity, really high mortality rates. So, you know, that's all just really concerning. They're really serious. Um, you know, second, I would say that they're much more prevalent in the general population than most people think. Um, I think there's this uh, belief that eating disorders are very, very rare. Um, and, you know, that's really not the case. And we're, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, um, you know, there's evidence to suggest that prevalence has been increasing over time um, mm. as well. So, uh, mm. yeah, in, in, uh, they're common. Um, and then third, uh, you know, despite some of the myths and misconceptions about like who is most likely to get an eating disorder, um, there's now very solid data to show that these illnesses actually disproportionately affect people from marginalized social groups, um, mm -hmm. including girls and women, um, but also um, LGBTQ plus people, racial mm -hmm. and ethnic minorities, people experiencing food insecurity um, and other groups as well. Um, so I guess summing all of that up, um, my mentor, Dr. Bryn Austin, always says that uh, eating disorders are common, deadly, and costly, um, and mm. that is why like, we in public health and epidemiology should care about them. Makes sense. Common, deadly, and costly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to follow, I mean, to follow up on your intro, I mean, I, I have a sibling that had an eating disorder and subsequently went into uh, nutrition and became a dietitian for a long time because yeah. of her yeah. connection to it and desire yeah. to make an impact in it. So it seems like, I mean, it seems to be one of the most personal and, but broad issues. Like it seems like probably sure. everybody, you know, has been touched by yep. uh, this mm -hmm. condition at in, in their life, whether them 
personally or someone they know. That's and, right. you know, given that, given how much we know that it's pernicious and, and, and prevalent in society, why do you think that, you know, relative to other psychiatric disorders, the, the, the field of research is not, is not well-funded? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very good question. Um, the field itself, well, especially the field in like public health and epidemiology of eating disorders um, is uh, quite small. Um, it's like much smaller than, you know, other like psychiatric epidemiology fields. Um, mm. So, you know, in that sense, like you could think like, oh, maybe there's just like less eating disorder specific grants being submitted to like the NIH and other funders. Um, but I would definitely be hesitant to say that it's like just the small size of the field mm-hmm. um, because for those of it, those of us in it, like we know that there's really um, an issue with available resources to do this kind of work. Um, I think the biggest thing that I run into is there's a lack of publicly available like large scale public health data on eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes things like generating publications and pilot data for grants kind of more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, We rarely see eating disorders listed as priority um, topics or areas of Hmm. research by funders. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, of course, is a concern. Um, And then one issue that I've run into so much, and I know a lot of my colleagues have as well, um, is that when we submit papers on eating disorders to like broader public health and mental health journals um, and often like high impact journals, they get desk rejected on the grounds that eating disorders are like a quote unquote niche topic. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, I actually That's just saw bizarre. a preprint. It is bizarre. And I saw a preprint yesterday. Um, I can I can send it to you after this, mm-hmm. um, kind of like exploring why that is happening. Um, mm. But uh Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes our research is published in like smaller, more specialty journals, which are great. um, But it does mean that, you know, we're less able to communicate the severity and like the importance of eating disorders to a wider audience. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I do think a lot of this like may be rooted in some of the stigma that still surrounds eating disorders. Um, You know, I talked a bit or I mentioned like myths and misconceptions about eating disorders, but like there still is, um, you know, kind of underlying beliefs that, you know, they're not as severe as other mental health conditions, Um, you know, their lifestyle choices, Mm -hmm. they are diseases of the affluent, all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lingering effect um, on the conduct of research on eating disorders. Understood. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like this is one of those one of those conditions that people think they have a grasp on in terms of the determinants and mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, like object not objectively subjectively i certainly would think to myself like okay there are very obvious reasons in society that eating disorders exist and a lot of them have to do with how we portray what beauty is and what like a healthy mm-hmm. lifestyle is mm-hmm. and a lot of it you know in the instagram and twitter world has to do mm-hmm. with influencers and mm-hmm. and so-called like mm-hmm. health advocates that are really just selling products based on their body image mm-hmm. but besides mm-hmm. like the obvious things like you know body image like that gets portrayed in society what are some of the other mm-hmm. kind of major contributors to to eating disorders that we that we don't know much right. about at all yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good question. 
Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, yeah, so uh, I agree with you that I think the majority of the research to date has kind of focused on these like body image related factors. Um, but there has been growing research um, in like psychology and also like sociology and anthropology um, that is looking at other kind of like social factors as well. Um, so, you know, uh, one thing that there was, there was actually a meta-analysis, I think, published on this a couple of years ago, um, looking at experiences with discrimination and eating disorders um, and discrimination across like different axes of identity and experience. So um, like uh, sexism and gender-based harassment, um, mm -hmm. heterosexism, racial discrimination, um, weight-based discrimination, um, and all of those, um, you know, the, this meta-analysis found like, uh, you know, a meaningful effect of discrimination on, on eating disorder risk. Um, mm -hmm. And importantly, um, uh, I talked about how this is probably an important determinant of eating disorder inequities as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and then more broadly, there's been work on um, like trauma and eating disorders. Um, and there's a large body of research on that and um, ex like adverse childhood experiences and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and then one area of research that um, is is a bit new, um, but there's like a lot of um, like it's gaining a lot of traction um, is uh, food insecurity and eating mm -hmm. disorders. Um, and so there's now several studies that suggest that experiencing food insecurity um, and kind of like this fluctuation um, of like, you know, you have maybe like you receive SNAP benefits and you get, um, you're, you're able to purchase food for a certain amount of time, but like it's not, it's not nearly sufficient. Um, so you have this like food and then like restriction um, that can lead to uh, like basically it mimics is like feast or famine kind of pattern um, and that itself uh, can trigger disordered eating. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the strongest effects um, are like bulimic spectrum disordered eating. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's a, a really important area of research as well. Yeah, it really goes against, like you were saying, the the myth of this being a disorder mm -hmm. of the affluent when you're talking mm -hmm. about um, it's really underprivileged people who in many different ways are um, more at risk for eating disorders. So that that is, mm -hmm. I think, really exposing a um, and exploding a myth there. Um, mm -hmm. So you were talking about how there's evidence that there's disorders have gone up over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, Gassan was talking about social media and influencers. Um, obviously that has becoming more and more a part of all of our lives, unfortunately, <laughs> maybe um, in recent time, but what are some of the other reasons you would say um, might be underlying this increase over time in eating disorders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, of course, social media, as we were talking about. Um, and, you know, I think we'll we'll get to the pandemic in a bit, yes. but that is definitely mm -hmm. uh, uh, important. Because um, you were saying you know, this was going up over mm -hmm. time, even before the pandemic, you mean, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's so uh, a caveat is that mm -hmm. we don't have the best uh, epidemiologic Definitive data evidence, to right. actually know mm -hmm. um, it. Yeah, there's virtually no nationally representative data on eating disorders right now. Um, so yeah, for example, like the WIRE BSS, um, mm -hmm. like the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System, um, that uh, included measures of eating disorders um, through 2013. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like our main source of representative data on eating disorder prevalence among youth. Um, mm -hmm. But unfortunately they took out um, the items, uh, the relevant mm -hmm. items, um, 
um, uh, in 2015. That's crazy. And so it's been like 10 years now. And wow. uh, yeah, there is effort to uh, try to reinstate those items um, mm -hmm. back on. Um, and so if any listener is interested in that, please like get in touch <laughs> with me because we can yeah. use like a lot of help in that effort. Um, but yeah, so we do often have to rely on um, like other cohort studies like mm -hmm. Ad Health or the Growing Up Today study. Um, and uh, yeah, our current estimates of eating disorder prevalence are actually based on simulation models um, huh. because we just don't have basic descriptive like surveillance information on wow. eating disorders. Um, but that being said, uh, from like, you know, those other sources that we're, mm -hmm. that we're using, you know, there is some evidence of, of like an increased prevalence, um, especially in some groups, like, uh, there is some evidence to, to suggest that prevalence was actually increasing more for like cis boys and men, um, mm -hmm. more so than cis girls and women. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, that's interesting and concerning as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So in terms of like what may be underlying these, um, these trends, um, you know, I, I, I really strongly suspect that like the socio-political climate right now um, is definitely impacting eating disorder prevalence and incidents. Um, like, you no, know, it's impacting other mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. um, so like here, I'm, you know, thinking about like rising income inequality and, and all of the economic impacts of the pandemic, um, you know, the legislative attacks against LGBTQ plus people and people of color, um, even the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like mm -hmm. we know that all of these things are manifestations of broad Broader systems of structural disadvantage that are the root causes of health inequities, um, mm -hmm. including for mental health outcomes. And like I was saying before, there is evidence to uh, linking discrimination um, with eating disorders. So um, yeah, I think that is definitely mm. um, uh, relevant. And then um, yeah, also relevant here. So my colleagues and I um, conducted a study um, uh, like last year, um, and we were looking at whether eating disorder risk uh, may be impacted by sexism that's exerted at the state level. So things mm -hmm. like abortion bans and wage gaps. Um, and we did find like a positive association um, and specifically like longer term exposure to this type of structural sexism, um, increased risk disproportionately for girls and women relative to boys and men. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of contributing to these um, gendered inequities um, and mm. risk. Um, and that is consistent with like a growing research on structural sexism um, and population health. Um, so yeah, I think that's of course concerning mm. given everything that's going on like socially and politically right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. And, you know, I, I want to, I want to take it back a little bit to something you uh -huh. started to, you started to address a moment ago, which was, um, the challenge in understanding prevalence of eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you said data are limited, but are there are there kind of uh, efforts or potentially interesting resources mm -hmm. for us to understand better what's going on in terms of eating disorder prevalence in society? And I think immediately about um, some individuals I know who are starting to try to like mine Twitter, for example, just like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kind of like kind yeah. of. Um, like word search algorithms Keywords, to figure yeah. out like if it's a way to understand, you know, kind of using social media and mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. remotely useful. Um, <laughs> but if there, if, if there, mm -hmm. uh, if there are opportunities there, or if there are efforts otherwise to, to, to improve just what we what, like, just the fundamentals, like the, just the descriptive side of things. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I don't know for sure. Uh, so I, you know, I, I know a bit about the research with like, you, you know, mining like Twitter and, and Instagram and Facebook posts. Um, I'm not sure if that is being done with respect to eating disorders, but I think that's really, really interesting. And it also mm -hmm. gets to kind of like another challenge um, with assessing eating disorder prevalence, which is that um, uh, like there are very valid concerns that our diagnostic categories and like commonly used screeners in our big cohort mm -hmm. studies are not like, you know, valid for diverse populations um, mm. and they can't, they're not like generalizable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like alternate methods like, you know, the mining Twitter and social media data could be a way to get around that and look at more diverse like presentations and manifestations of eating disorders and um, disordered eating. Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think the simulation modeling that I like briefly mentioned is another approach um, where they're taking like all available evidence. But of course, the, the limitation there is that the data is uh, getting old at this point um, mm -hmm. and some of the measurement issues. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a really interesting and innovative um, surveillance method idea, Gassan, that, that you know, mm -hmm. um, I was actually thinking more um, the uh, on the outcome side of things like surveilling hospitalizations or mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. emergency, you know, like the treatment of eating mm -hmm. disorders. And I was thinking, you know, the problem there is that the prevalence could be going up just because more people are getting treated. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay, you know, yeah. the, um, but then the interesting thing about using Google searches or Twitter or whatever is that it in some ways relies upon a um, uh, an awareness almost, uh, well, depending, I guess, which keywords and how you're searching okay. for things. But if people don't know <laughs> that they are are experiencing eating disorders, it may not show up in, in the way that they mm -hmm. interact with social media and stuff. So it's interesting how all of the different ways you can survey, survey this um, has measurement issues in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you you were talking about how, I, I think you you might have mentioned to us that, um, and, and maybe it was before in our emails when we were talking about this, that mm -hmm. hospitalizations and emergency department visits have gone up um, mm -hmm. for eating disorders. And, and what do you think is underlying that? Or were you talking about specifically for the COVID epidemic, pandemics? Yeah, yeah. So there's been um, a couple studies and CDC mm -hmm. reports um, that have looked at um, inpatient and outpatient hospitalizations mm -hmm. and also emergency department visits related mm -hmm. to eating disorders um, pre to post pandemic onset mm -hmm. um, and finding, um, yeah, like pretty significant spikes. Um, yeah. I think one of the studies, for example, found that um, inpatient hospitalizations um, like doubled from like mm -hmm. early 2020 to um, like mid like you know spring or, mm -hmm. or early summer 2020. Mm -hmm. um, the importantly though this was among um, a cohort of uh, um, U.S. adults and children with insurance health insurance so mm -hmm. that already mm -hmm. becomes kind of a, a skewed population. Right. Um, but yeah, um, but in terms of, but that study had, or that finding has been replicated in, in um, some other populations mm -hmm. as well. And um, the emergency department findings are also interesting because that includes, um, you know, 
folks who may not have health insurance as well, mm -hmm. although that could also be a marker of like increased severity of, of eating disorders or like an exacerbation of symptoms. Sure. Um, but yeah, in terms of like what could be underlying mm -hmm. um, some of these big spikes. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been a variety of hypotheses about like what is going on and, you know, what was happening in 2020, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So we know the pandemic has led to kind of like overall increases in fear and isolation and, and anxiety and all of these sort of general mental health risk factors sure. that are certainly relevant to eating disorders. Um, of course, there was an increased use of social media during like lockdown time, um, which, you know, could be uh, uh, relevant, especially for, for youth. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I didn't mention this at the time when we were talking about social media, but um, there was an increase in like harmful and discriminatory messaging on mm -hmm. social media um, about weight. Um, Something about oh. things like fear mongering of like the quarantine 15, because um, like oh, you know, you're sitting at home, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like that uh, yeah. uh, also. Um, in and obesity with... was was a major <laughs> risk factor yeah, for, for severe outcomes gonna... in COVID. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like all of this messaging around like, yeah, like IBMI is, you know, uh, potentially leading to like hospitalizations and, you know, increased risk of death from COVID. Mm -hmm. So that definitely reflecting kind of like broader, you know, weight stigma and discrimination and like embedded in our in our culture and our medical mm -hmm. system and all of that. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, the pandemic and all of the very necessary public health measures led to really big disruptions in mm -hmm. daily life. Um, but this includes things like, um, you know, disruptions to our normal exercise patterns and um, like restricted movement and um, our ability to go grocery shopping. Um, and all of that could have led to some heightened concerns over like body image and weight for those who may already be um, like high risk um, of these um, like cognitions and these issues. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was mentioning before, like food insecurity. Um, and mm -hmm. we know, of course, the pandemic has like really exacerbated um, rates of food insecurity in the US. Um, so I think, yeah, all of that is relevant. Mm. Um, although we definitely need more like rigorous research, like actually looking and testing these hypotheses. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you, you started to go into the COVID pandemic. And of course, you know, you can't have a podcast and early 2023 without talking about the impact of COVID on anything you're talking about. But mm -hmm. um, besides those, the, the things you mentioned, were there, are there any kind of major studies that have come out of in the time of the pandemic or, you know, before and after comparing trends or trying to determine if there are any, you know, determinants of uh, eating disorder that are potentially impact that were potentially impacted by the pandemic or if the pandemic itself mm -hmm. was the determinant of changes mm -hmm. in eating disorder? Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good question. Um, so there was a systematic review that was published like a couple weeks ago on um, like the impact of the pandemic on eating disorders. And um, they concluded that essentially we need more research on like what are are the factors like mm -hmm. right now we just have mostly um like qualitative and some mm -hmm. cross-sectional um descriptive data um on you know all of these uh factors that i was talking about in their associations with um like eating disorder symptoms during like you know early 2020 or maybe a couple time points um and so yeah i think we need to do a lot more research on that um that's something that um, my research group is working on right now, um, kind of leveraging some of the, the cohort data we have with like nurses health study and the growing up today study where um, 
we do have data like pre-pandemic and um, we did a COVID sub-study, um, really like intensive um, sampling during um, 2020 and 2021. And of course we have like ongoing um, data collection, um, but yeah, a really important area of future research. I don't think there's anything really conclusive we can say right now of like this factor is what led to these spikes. Gotcha. Yeah, I had, a, you know, you said some, that was really interesting what you were saying about the unintended consequences of letting people know that, you know, obesity or high BMI could be, um, you know, a predictor of, of negative outcomes with COVID. But I think even pre-COVID, you know, that's a major public health message that, that we're giving mm -hmm. people that, you know, um, you know, I almost see this as kind of two parallel processes going on, one being in my mind, kind of a, a toxic, <laughs> a psychiatrically toxic thing. And another thing being a, 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 um, a beneficial message, but they both may have a negative outcome on eating disorders. So what I mean mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, we in public health are telling people you've got to uh, eat healthily. You have to kind of keep your BMI low. A lot of people don't like BMI anymore, but whatever measure you have of <laughs> adipose content, you know, keep that low in, in terms of all sorts of health outcomes. Um, we spread that message around. And then simultaneously, we've got social media influencers saying, you know, you should look like this, maybe these unrealistic standards of, of what your body should look like. And so it, it, it's interesting mm -hmm. to me as a public health researcher, I see one as a good thing, a good message, and one as a real negative toxic message. And um, in talking to you, I'm like, man, maybe they're both leading to increases in eating disorders for people. And that's kind of scary. So what are your thoughts on that? How can we as, as public health practitioners um, spread the message that eating well and staying you know, physically active is a good thing mm -hmm. without exacerbating eating disorders? Mm -hmm. That is such a good question. And yeah, I will say that I, you know, I think a lot of public health and uh, and medicine, um, you know, mean uh, oftentimes, most of the time, is meaning well um, and sure. wants to like you know support health and reduce health inequities. Um, but you know, there is a lot of harm that has been done um, also by public health and medicine um, in the realm of of like weight and health. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, in that respect, I think uh, a couple of things. Uh, I think one a little bit more engagement with the eating disorder literature mm -hmm. um, and looking at the evidence of how, um, you know, diets, uh, you know, imposed diets and, and mm -hmm. weight related messaging um, mm -hmm. has some pretty uh, severe mental health consequences, uh, especially mm -hmm. for, um, you know, younger kids and, and other groups as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is important. Um, and then also, um, you know, of course, you know, you were saying like, like eating healthy and exercise, all that mm -hmm. certainly important that can all be done without a focus on, on weight. Um, and hmm. also mm -hmm. I think a much stronger focus on like, okay, do you have access to food at all? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, do you have access to uh, like fresh food or enough food? Do you mm -hmm. have a place where you can engage in exercise? Are you able to engage in exercise? Is it safe for you to go outside mm -hmm. and exercise? Like all of those are just, mm -hmm. you know, like really core important like social determinants of health mm -hmm. that are relevant not just to eating disorders of course um, but just health in general and, and health equity um, yeah. and yeah so you know shift, I think there of course is 
the need to sort of shift away from like this very like individualistic weight centric yes. approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I know a lot of people in public health or and epidemiology are certainly talking about that mm -hmm. as well, not just eating disorder folks. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, it's of course really, really entrenched in our field. Sure. Um, so yeah, probably a lot of like broader kind of systemic change um, is, mm -hmm. is needed there. Yeah. Some self-reflection on our messaging. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So do, do you know of progress in this area? Like, <laughs> have, I mean, I, I genuinely want to know, you know, as somebody who, you know, as an epidemiologist, somebody who does research on any number of things, when the topic of of adjusting, accounting for, considering mm -hmm. body mass index comes up or, mm -hmm. or weight or, mm -hmm. you know, as a proxy for health, it's always body mass mm -hmm. index, categorized, mm -hmm. continuous, whatever. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it just seems like, how could we not have a better solution to, mm -hmm. con to consider this both as both in terms of what you're saying, in terms of, you know, the societal implications of mm -hmm. making these standards as well as just understanding or having something useful to consider in research. Mm -hmm. sure. mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know there was a conversation at, at the SER meeting um, last mm -hmm. year of folks just saying like, oh, it would be great to have a session on, on like weight and health and, and BMI and health, both like um, you know, from like a health equity standpoint, but also from like a methodological standpoint mm -hmm. um, at SER next year. Um, I don't know if that is going to happen, um, but I think <laughs> something like that would be uh, like really, really helpful. Um, but I could also envision like, you know, maybe a special issue or like a call for papers mm -hmm. um, in like epi journals. Um, and, you know, really centering also the voices of people like with lived experience um, and, you know, people from like the fat activism sphere um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, people in like the eating disorder world and getting, um, you know, these other perspectives um, really centered um, in, in epidemiology, I think would be really helpful in that respect. Um, I think in terms of like, what progress have I seen? Um, you know, uh, in one respect, uh, it's like, you know, I have a bit like biased uh, experience having like a mentor who does eating disorder research now and like really works to get, um, you know, content on um, like weight stigma integrated into like, you know, public health classes. Mm -hmm. um, but and that's great as well. Like, you know, that could just be an example, like when you're in uh, you know, teaching like basic epi concepts or, um, you know, biostats concepts, like, I can think of so many examples that, you know, we're like using weight just as, as the case example, you mm -hmm. could do something on eating disorders, you could do mm -hmm. something on weight stigma instead. Um, but yeah, yeah, right. there's still room to grow. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we can say that about a lot of, uh, a lot of areas of epidemiology, sure. but especially mm -hmm. here. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I want I want to bring it back to the to the topic of of youth and eating disorders because mm -hmm. it, selfishly you know being a parent I, I think yep. about anything related to the health <laughs> and happiness of my children. We're about and, to grill you on this. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so it, it's it, you know, and, and of course, like I think I think the pressures on adults are a little are almost a little more tangible like all that influencer stuff and things like that mm -hmm. and, and to some extent we try to isolate or at least shelter our children from those kind of things but obviously eating disorders are 
important for youth as well and a concern. Mm -hmm. So like, what are, what do we know about, about the most important determinants of eating disorders in youth and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what are, what are some things that can be done about it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so, you know, I don't focus on like very, very young children in my mm. own work, but I do know that there are actually like really important gaps in that area. Um, so there's some recent work um, being led by Dr. Um, Cherry Levinson at the University of Louisville. Um, and, uh, you know, well, first she's been calling for more research on eating disorders in young kids for a while, because mm -hmm. most of our work um, is, you know, kind of starting in like late childhood, adolescence, um, because that's kind of the typical age of onset. Mm -hmm. um, but some of her work is showing that, uh, you know, eating disorder risk factors, like kind of the more proximal ones, maybe mm -hmm. onsetting as early as age, like three or four, mm -hmm. um, and then eating disorders themselves, um, onsetting, you know, in like early, late childhood, like before adolescence. So mm -hmm. that's, that's definitely concerning. Um, and some of the risk factors that she was looking at, they were much more like proximal, but, um, you know, kind of like distorted, like body image related, like cognitions mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, you know, that could them in part from just like really early exposure to hmm. these, you know, these images and social media, mm -hmm. um, just, you know, broader, like the pandemic was so stressful and mm -hmm. it was so right. really, really impacted development um, and like social interactions for kids. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, I can't, I can't speak to like if there's been research on that, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely a need to look at like really young kids and, and kind of what's going on there. Yeah, I have a, I gotta ask you this because I'm so, mm -hmm. uh, man, I've been, my wife and I have been just struggling with this, like, um, and it was interesting how you put it that younger kids may be having some of like the precipitants of, of eating disorders. And then, and then it, it's really an adolescence that, you know, I guess full-blown eating disorders mm -hmm. manifest. And it sounds like um, to be considered an eating disorder has to kind of be tied. Is, is this true or not? I'm asking as a question. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. making a statement mm -hmm. um, that, that it sounds like what you're saying that it has to be tied to some idea of body image or uh, I, I, let me, let me take a step back and ask a broader question. How do mm -hmm. you distinguish an eating disorder from mm -hmm. just normal you know, picky eating in young children mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. where does it become problematic and where does it right. be, become something that you, that you should view through the lens of an eating disorder? Um, mm -hmm. We certainly struggle with our daughter is very, very picky with eating mm -hmm. and, it, and it concerns us and we get upset, but then we're like, well, maybe we shouldn't be making this out to be an eating disorder. Maybe she's just being a picky kid. She's six, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but we are worried that it can manifest later as that. So how do you draw mm -hmm. that line? Is there a way to draw the line? You know, whatever you can mm -hmm. tell us on this would be really useful to know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I would say it's, it's, there's no hard line. Um, and mm -hmm. th there's gray areas. So um, you know, you were saying like, do eating disorders, are they always characterized by like body image disturbances? Mm -hmm. um, no. Uh, okay. So, you know, okay. like anorexia nervosa, yes, that is part of like, at least the diagnostic criteria mm -hmm. in the DSM. I was saying before there's, you know, uh, you know, valid criticism, whether that is truly capturing what anorexia looks like 
for all, you know, all different groups. Um, mm -hmm. But in general, you know, some some issues relating to yeah, body image, weight concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and the same is true, like for bulimia, um, binge eating disorder. Um, there is an eating disorder called ARFID. Um, and so that stands for uh, avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. Um, that is characterized by, um, you know, severe restriction, oftentimes of certain food types, um, but to the extent that, um, you know, there's maybe like significant weight loss, um, uh, it's really, really impacting um, physical health, it's like dangerous, um, mm -hmm. but there's the absence of um, like body image concerns um, mm -hmm. and and like weight related concerns and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and also, uh, um, uh, picky eating is, mm -hmm. is thought to be a risk factor a for risk ARFID. Factor. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Yeah, so, so ARFID like is not picky eating, but there's mm -hmm. certainly a relationship. Um, That's interesting. But yeah, right. Because mm -hmm. I was, you know, like I mean, in young kids, it has nothing. I shouldn't say for all kids, but at least, you know, really nothing to do with like body image or weight. It's more just like mm -hmm. a, um, it's just a. a a relationship with food <laughs> that mm -hmm, could be different mm -hmm. for one kid to the next or one kid just likes mm -hmm. eating it. Another kid is just like, mm -hmm. I don't like doing this. I don't like mm -hmm. putting food in my mouth. I don't like the way it tastes. I don't like the way mm -hmm. it feels. And it sounds like you're saying that that can be kind of a risk factor. You know, you have to keep your eyes open to that because it could turn into um, mm -hmm. something bigger, but it's not necessarily a disorder in the moment. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. And like, even even when talking about like body image mm -hmm. um, concerns and body image dissatisfaction, like that too is, is like a gray area and a spectrum. Sure. Like mm -hmm. not everyone who goes on a diet, you know, it, it has body image concerns. Like mm -hmm. that itself is not for everyone. It's not an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, right. It could be right. risk factors for an eating disorder. It could lead mm -hmm. to an eating disorder. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's definitely a spectrum. Um, sure. And yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, often why like we are really like advocating for like better screening, early intervention, like mm -hmm. better awareness. Um, because yeah, like when when is the tipping point? Um, and also though, like regardless of where you are on this spectrum, mm -hmm. like if you want help or you know, would feel better with help, then like help uh -huh. and treatment should be available. Yes. Um, yeah. Good regardless uh -huh. of like a diagnosis or anything uh -huh. like that. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really interesting point that all of us, you know, we were talking about young kids, but like with older, all of us as adults, it's like, we're all somewhere on the spectrum. I mean, <laughs> no one has never, ever in their life thought about how mm -hmm. they look or how, right. they, how much they weigh Absolutely. or whether they're healthy. Um, we're all struggling with this at all times. And yep. when it becomes problematic is, uh, you know, it's hard to draw that line, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you live in a culture where there's like constant messaging around yes. like food and eating and like what's normal, what's not, what's like healthy, what's not, um, mm -hmm. how you should eat and look, then it's like impossible to avoid not internalizing some sure of those is. messages. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually want to clarify because or ask a clarification. So you, you guys mentioned drawing the line how where where is the line is there I, a I, line I, genuinely like i i i'm really curious because i don't you know, know if there is a line That's what true. what what that line mm. is 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 it, it would i i certainly couldn't i could if someone asked me how do you know if your kid has an eating disorder i would say i have no idea i can't i couldn't mm -hmm. i couldn't tell um 
I couldn't tell anyone if, if a child had an eating disorder or not, unless it was just, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of on the extreme of where a phenotype would be. And it was so apparent that something was going on. And so, and this, this kind of connects to what kind of would be like a wrap up question for us, which Mm -hmm. would be how can public health and medical professionals make an impact here? How can, Mm -hmm. how can they help people to address eating disorder issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's any hard line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right. you know, I know there's broader conversations in the eating disorder field, um, particularly in like psychiatry and psychology around like measurement and, and like these diagnostic categories and whether we should be moving to more of like a, like a trans diagnostic kind of approach and more of like, like, uh, I think the the new term that is like, you know, being kind of thought about is like, eating spectrum disorders or something uh, really emphasizing like the spectrum. Um, And yeah, I guess just like, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying before is just like, when there is like a need for help, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. then help like should be available. Um, And so I guess that could like lead into talking about like what medical and public health professionals like can do in that respect. Um, I guess, you know, in in, like the medical realm, um, like definitely uh, like more enhanced screening efforts. Um, I think especially among primary care um, physicians and then um, like, you know, pediatricians um, and kind of like first line, like, you know, people who are, mm-hmm. are seeing people who are not coming in for uh, like specialized services. That's mm-hmm. really important. Um, but in that respect, also um, really a need for um, kind of increased awareness among um, mm-hmm. like primary care physicians that eating disorders like can and do affect people of all mm-hmm. genders, of all racial backgrounds, of like all incomes, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and then um, really also just a need for like an expanded eating disorder workforce as well. Um, so, you know, more like clinicians and therapists and nutritionists who have been like specifically trained in, in eating disorder care, um, especially those who take insurance who may offer like telehealth services um, or like sliding scale, um, kind of like payment options so that people um, who like really need help can get help. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, in terms of like public health, um, yeah, we really do, uh, I think, need more like large scale prevention efforts, particularly those that are like centering equity um, and are really trying to address, um, you know, uh, uh, disparities and risks that we were talking about um, and a lot of like the barriers that people face to accessing care, accessing mm-hmm. even like a diagnosis to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been um, a lot of really great policy work in the eating disorder field um, that are looking to like expand uh, insurance coverage for eating disorders or um, like mandate eating disorder content um, be included in in medical school curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's all really important. And yeah, yeah. And so I think that those are really important kind of like structural level, um, like policy interventions that will hopefully make a really big impact um, and then, of course, like we need surveillance, um, like mm-hmm. we need public health professionals yeah, to to like, you know, advocate for the re-inclusion of items in the YRBS, um, also like the BRFSS, NHANES, like all of our big national surveillance systems mm-hmm. um, so that we can, you know, have data, do research, inform research allocation, all of that. Uh, very, very good way to close this out. I would, I would assume you'd also agree that we need to, as a society, destigmatize talking about 
these disorders and, and mm-hmm. accepting that you or someone you love may be struggling with it and that it's not something that we need to deal with behind closed doors and feel mm-hmm. ashamed about. Because like you said, it is so common um, that, you know, why should we be forced to struggle with this without help? So mm-hmm. thank you mm-hmm. so much. I guess yeah. I'm going to let you, oh, go ahead, Gasan. Oh, no, that was it. <laughs> I, I think you really said a lot about where we need to take this in the future, but I just want to give you the opportunity in case we've missed anything, you know, any closeout statement you have on where mm-hmm. you think the field of ep- the epidemiology of eating disorders should or could go in the future mm-hmm. and what, what are we missing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, great question. And um, yeah, I think just, you know, a heightened focus on on uh, the inequities and risk um, and the, the barriers to accessing care, um, you know, uh, ongoing monitoring of these disparities is mm-hmm. certainly really important. Um, but we also really now need to focus on identifying like their root causes so that we can like act yes. on them. Um, yes. So yeah, I see that as kind of like the, the main um, important we thing. We still know we're... so little about these root mm-hmm. causes and how to intervene mm-hmm. on them, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess also just ending on like a positive note, like I will yes. add that I have amazing friends and colleagues in this field who are already doing like such important work in this area, awesome. despite all of the challenges we are talking mm-hmm. about um, and are yeah making really tangible impacts in terms of like developing interventions and raising awareness and like mm-hmm. getting eating disorder related policies introduced in state legislatures, like I was talking mm-hmm. about before. Um, so I think that's all like really important and really inspiring. Um, yeah. That is very inspiring. And you said that this is a small, some ways niche field, the epidemiology of eating disorders. I hope that in mm-hmm. the future, it becomes a much larger field. And I hope someone listening, you know, gets into gets into this because we need a lot of help in this area. And um, you know, I, I think in talking about our your personal journey, I think this is really helping uh, to move the, the needle forward. So thank you so much, mm-hmm. Ariel, for, for talking to us. And before we go- Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Before we go, I'm going to do my little closing spiel now. Uh, If you're an epidemiologist, we strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, SCR. Membership gets you discounted fees for the annual meeting, which will be held in June 2023 in Portland, Oregon. I'm excited for that, Uh, as well as access to the SCR library which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And as always, you can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SER. And we really appreciate your listening. We hope to be back with another episode soon. Thanks. Thanks.